Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the new Omicron variant is a reminder of what scientists have warned us about for months now. The virus will thrive as long as various parts of the world lack vaccines. Is a lack of vaccines being donated partly to blame for this new rise and this fifth variant? How can this new variant impact the Canadian economy as its spread continues to widen? We'll get into that discussion as well. And the federal government has tabled a new tougher bill in its latest effort to ban conversion therapy. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We need to talk about the variant itself. And, and now that we apparently are facing a fifth variant on this, what happened? What's causing this? Well, World Health Organization Director General Tedros Anaham Ghebreyos reminded us, I think, that no region... No country, no community, and no individual is safe from pandemics until we are all safe. Omicron demonstrates just why the world needs a new accord on pandemics. Our current system disincentivizes countries from alerting others to threats that will inevitably land on their shores. Well, we were sure talking the talk when the, the, the vaccines uh, became available late last year and early this year, especially here in North America, uh, that we understood that, uh, that no country, no individual was going to be safe. But has it worked out that way? I want to bring uh, Dr. Jason Nickerson into the conversation. Dr. Nickerson is a humanitarian affairs advisor for Doctors Without Borders. Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. We talked about this uh, six, seven months ago that, that we made, had to make sure that these things were being distributed, especially uh, to some of the poorer nations to ensure that the virus was going to be held under control. Uh, the numbers we've seen here, doctor, says we have not done a very good job of that. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, today we're sitting at uh, somewhere below 6% uh, of, of all individuals in low-income countries who have received even one dose of vaccine. Uh, and of course, we need to compare that to the, the reality here in Canada, which is that we're sitting somewhere around 80%, I believe. I think we're 79 point something um, of, of Canadians who, who are eligible, who've received uh, at least one dose. And many of those people, of course, have received two and, and now uh, potentially three doses. So you know, we're really facing a massive inequity and, and um, that's that's got massive, of course, moral implications, but also, as we're seeing in the past several days, has really quite significant implications for public health globally, but also here at home. I, I know some people, as I've read some of the reaction to this on social media and, and some of the, the experts, I guess, that have weighed in on this, uh, some are blaming governments uh, from places like Canada and the United States and, and the UK and others uh, for not doing the distribution that they promised. Others are blaming the drug companies themselves for gouging in some cases and things of this nature. As, as, as I get a consensus here, doctor, uh, a pox on all their houses, they, they all share the blame here. Yeah, I think that the you know let's be honest, the problem is multifaceted. Um, I think I think that some some blame rests uh, in in on the shoulders of of all of uh, these these entities from governments through to to pharmaceutical companies. I mean, you know, I think to to just help make sense of of all of this, um, the the past couple of days. I've really been going back to to thinking about the the, the messaging that we we pushed uh, here in Canada 
when vaccines were just starting to, to roll out here. And that message was that the, the right strategy uh, for getting this pandemic under control uh, and, and for protecting Canadians uh, was a first dose is fast strategy. And then and I'm sure that you and, and your listeners will remember that when vaccines uh, first came onto the scene here in Canada as a, as a public health tool, um, you know, Canada opted for, for a strategy of getting one dose uh, into the arms of as many uh, eligible Canadians as possible before we moved on to second doses. And the premise of that being that you know, even even with one dose, that confers a, a reasonable amount of, of immunity. It's of course not not perfect, um, but it's it's helpful for uh, preventing infection and 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 reducing transmission from from person to person. And unfortunately, you know that well. Fortunately, that was the right strategy for for Canada. Uh, unfortunately, that strategy has not been applied globally, and that's not what we have done at a global level. Uh, rather, what what has been allowed to happen. Um, is, is pharmaceutical companies have effectively been allowed to call the shots, uh, so to speak, uh, and, and have been able to make decisions about who they were going to prioritize uh, to, to sell doses to and where those doses were going to go. And by and large, they have, they've uh, sold doses to high-income countries that were willing to pay high prices to, to get to the front of the line. And governments have done very little to, to twist their arms uh, to, to effectively force them to do things like uh, you know, sell doses to low-income countries, and, and many of them are willing to pay uh, reasonable prices to, to access doses. But also governments had and continue to have uh, leverage and, and legal tools to force companies to, to share their technology with other manufacturers, to scale up manufacturing, uh, to produce the doses that the world needs. Um, and, and that leverage just hasn't been used. Um, and so we find ourselves in this situation of having too high of demand for, for too few doses. Uh, and, and that's part of what's creating this gap that we're talking about today. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there has to be some context here. Uh, are are, are the, the doses not getting to these countries or are they getting there and not being distributed? I mean, the ultimate goal here is to get them into people's arms. And that's clearly not happening. Where, where, where's the, the, the holdup here? What's it, what's in, or is it, is it simply the supply problem? Well, I mean, it's it, it's becoming a multifaceted problem. So, um, you know, we are in a situation where in Canada, for example, we have 10.6 million doses that are sitting in federal freezers uh, as of as of last week, um, and that's far more doses that are sitting in the federal government's freezers than than the federal government has donated to to low income countries. I think uh, the total is around uh, nine million doses that that have been donated. So it's about 1.6 million more doses sitting in freezers you know, as opposed to being donated to, to countries that need them. I think it goes without saying that, uh, you know, vaccines and freezers don't produce antibodies. Um, so, you know, we need to be uh, mobilizing uh, these these vaccine doses to to get out the door. But to, to answer your, your question in a more global sense, you know, we're in a situation now where um, we are facing distribution problems. There are doses that have been produced that are, are sitting waiting to be used. Um, that, that could be shipped. But again, if we go back to the start of the, the Canadian vaccination experience, um, I'm sure that everyone will remember just how logistically complicated it was to mount a national vaccination program for a vaccine um, that had never been introduced before, had never been used uh, as part of a public health program. You know, it took, it took Canada that has a very uh, high functioning health system or health systems 
several weeks to find the, the sort of pace and the cadence of, of receiving vaccines, distributing them to the provinces, moving those out to public health units, moving those out to family doctor's offices and to pharmacies and so on. You know, this is a logistically complicated endeavor. And it, the situation that we find ourselves in today is that, yes, there are vaccine doses that, that are being distributed, um, but countries are receiving them uh, with very short notice, sometimes with only days, uh, maybe a, a, a week or so notice. And um, those doses are arriving with a very short uh, timeline to it, to the expiry date. Um, and it's it's difficult for, for anybody to make use of those doses. It would be difficult for Canada to use some of these doses uh, under these kinds of timelines. Um, and so countries are, are now saying, look, you know, we, we need a, more of a heads up. We need a more predictable schedule. We need a more predictable pace of receiving these, these doses so that we can properly uh, distribute them to, to everywhere that's needed. You know, it's it, it's going to be impossible for the world to to quickly uh, distribute and and use a billion doses if they if they land on on doorsteps uh, with only a few days notice and a, a few weeks before expiry. So, you know, the the problem is is complicated, and this is really why we and others have been calling for for weeks and months now um, for a predictable scaling up of manufacturing uh, and and for predictable timelines for when countries would be making uh, dose donations so that countries can can make full use of them. With, with that in mind then, doctor, who coordinates that? Or should there be a, a, a global coordinator? I don't know if it's the World Health Organization. I don't even know if they have the capability of doing that. Uh, but you can't do, as you mentioned, one-offs because you're catching people off guard. There needs to be a coordinated distribution here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So there, there, there are coordinators of this. So um, there's an international uh, vaccines initiative called COVAX, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard of, which mm-hmm. uh, was the, the sort of global procurement and, and distrib- distribution uh, organization set up by the World Health Organization uh, with, with partnerships with, with others like UNICEF and, and Gavi. Um, so, you know, in theory, COVAX is, it should be the, the recipient and the distributor and the coordinator of, of all of these vaccines. Um, but, you know, look, everybody is working really under a, a, a bit of a veil of secrecy. Um, you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies are, are really not sharing as much information as they should be about the, the, the pace of manufacturing, the scale of manufacturing, how they're, they're allocating doses, um, which, of course, is now becoming more complicated as, as boosters or third doses come onto the scene. Um, and, and similarly, countries, uh, in, including Canada, are, are giving uh, quite short notice uh, to COVAX, uh, as well as countries that are receiving uh, dose donations directly from uh, the, the Canadian government, um, you know, it's it's really not a, a, a lot of heads up. So I I know I do realize, of course, that we're in a global pandemic. This is a crisis, um, but I do also say this as as a representative of a of an emergency organization. Um, you know, coordination truly does save lives, um, and and it, you know, I think that we we really need the world to to get its act together on on this one to make sure that we're making full use uh, of these vaccine doses um so that we can hopefully put a put an end to this pandemic there's another factor involved here and and i guess we were hoping against hope that wasn't going to be much of a factor but as you said these manufacturers are for-profit companies uh and you know we had hoped that there was going to be some sense of a philanthropic flair to what they were doing uh, but we've heard stories, and I'm sure you have too, Doctor, of, of price gouging. Uh, even some of these poor nations are, are being told to pay a premium or they don't get the vaccine in situations like this. And if distribution is going to be part of the concern here, 
is is it incumbent upon places like the UK and Canada, the United States, to maybe buy those up and do the distribution as opposed to, in other words, being the middleman here and paying the whatever price they can get, whatever deal they can get in a situation like that, and then distribute them as opposed to those countries dealing directly with the, the manufacturers, which doesn't seem to be working very well. Well, I would agree with you that it's it's not working very well. Um, and and if we take the you know current current example of um, of, of Botswana, um, which of course has, has is, a, is a country in southern Africa, um, you know Botswana uh, made an announcement uh, in in their parliament sometime over the summer um, that they uh, had had purchased, I believe it was five hundred thousand doses of Moderna vaccine, um, and had paid twenty nine dollars per dose, which is more than what we understand the European Union is is paying per dose uh, of, for the same vaccine. And, and Botswana uh, at that point had not received uh, those doses. So you know, I think that we do need to recognize that what uh, countries are calling for uh, is is for fair pricing and and fair access. It's, it's really not charity. Um, and that's, you know, the, I think the mistake that was made very early on in, in this pandemic is that there is an opportunity here for, for the countries that were directly funding the research and development of these vaccines um, and that had leverage and had control over things like the intellectual property rights uh, of, of the vaccines and, and the underlying technologies you know, to, to really flex some muscle um, and, and to say, look, this is not going to be a, a business as usual scenario where we're going to allow uh, this, this fatal imbalance of access uh, to, to medicines to, to exist. You know, I think countries had that opportunity to, to really at the outset say, you know, we're, we're going to identify all of the global manufacturers that can produce these vaccines. And we're going to give them the legal rights uh, and, and the support in transferring the technology to those vaccine manufacturing plants um, to produce doses so that we have enough to, to satisfy global demand, um, but also to produce that at, at a reasonable price. All of these things were possible um, and, and they simply did not happen. And so we find ourselves in, in this situation today where pharmaceutical companies, quite frankly, have a tremendous amount of power uh, to, to call the shots uh, and, and to demand outrageous prices that are completely disconnected from the cost of actually producing these doses um, or the, the cost of researching and, and developing them um, and to prioritize who gets access when. Um, and that's, you know, quite frankly, coming around to to, to bite us, um, you know, from a, a global public health perspective. I got literally a minute left, but I have to ask you about this because uh, we've been told right from day one of the vaccines becoming available. Uh, and, and, and I think the, the World Health Organization reiterated this the other day. Uh, until everybody is covered, this is going to happen. I mean, you know, for instance, this new one that we're talking about here, the Omicron, is said to have originated in South Africa. Uh, they have an adult vaccination rate of 41%. Uh, have we learned our lesson yet that until we address the problems you just outlined here, uh, there's going to be a fifth variant, maybe a sixth until we get our act together here? Well, I think coming back to, to my earlier comment that the Canadian strategy was a first doses fast strategy, get, getting you know one dose into as many arms as we could. And the, the rationale behind that was that this is a strategy that could uh, disrupt transmission from, from person to person. Um, and you know the World Health Organization and, and many others have repeatedly warned that if we have hundreds of millions or billions of people who remain unvaccinated and unprotected, we, the world runs the risk uh, of, of transmission 
uh, from person to person leading to the emergence of, of additional variants of concern. So whether that's what's happened here uh, today, it's is, is frankly too early to tell. We're only a few days into to understanding this variant, um, but certainly, you know, not vaccinating the world um, puts us all at risk and, and quite frankly puts the effectiveness of the vaccines that, that Canadians and, and others around the world are relying on uh, to keep us safe. It puts us at risk as well. So this is the, the morally correct thing to do, vaccinating the world, um, but it's also the correct public health strategy for, for protecting us all. There's no question about that. Well, I hope that's the message and the takeaway here. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and the great work that you and your organization is doing. Uh, really appreciate the work and uh, the help today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me again. Take care. Dr. Jason Nickerson, of course, from uh, Doctors Without Borders. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, whether or not we like it, uh, we're dealing with uh, yet another wave here, another virus. And uh, the Omicron uh, variant now is, uh, well, we know is spreading. I, initially, it was, well, it's in South Africa, maybe in Australia. Uh, there's a list of other nations now, including Canada, uh, that have seen this. And we know with past variants and uh, with other elements of uh, this pandemic that have uh, been with us for almost two years now, uh, certainly it has an an impact on the economy. So what's going to happen with this, with Omicron? And what kind of an impact, if any, is it going to have? Now, we we need to preface everything we're saying here with these are early days. And and the health experts are telling us right now we don't know enough. We've heard some speculation from the World Health Organization that this may well be more transmissible, in other words, more contagious. It may even be more severe than some of the past variants, but they don't know that for sure just yet, just based on some of the cases they got. But what is this going to happen? How are governments going to respond to this? And what are the economic impacts, moreover? Uh, let's not, uh, for a second, uh, I hope that we're going to get back into where we were uh, six, eight months ago. Uh, we're still crawling out of that. Moshe Lander is a senior economist uh, lecturer with uh, Concordia University, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about some of these implications. Uh, Moshe, always a pleasure. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm well, but let's start with the important stuff here. Bumper music that's dug in the slugs. Like, this is yeah. fantastic. <laughs> When's uh, the last time you heard dug in the slugs? But... <laughs> when is the last time you heard dug in the slugs anywhere? Uh, you know what? It was bumper music for another yeah, show. Probably on this but, show, yeah. <laughs> but I love it. Well, uh, now let, let's credit, credit to our, yeah, credit to our technical producer Alicia, who's doing a wonderful job back there and pushing the CanCon stuff too. So we, she's got that long list of other stuff. So we'll we'll surprise you each and every time, won't you? <laughs> Let, let's talk about what's going on here. I mean, I I, I know the governments are going to be reticent to talk about how this is going to have an impact, but you've told us time and time again, markets and economies don't like insecurity they don't like things that to be in flux well it's starting to get that way i'm hoping it's not going to be as bad as it was but people are nervous right now and that's not good for a recovering economy is it no and especially when the uncertainty that's being introduced here is another variant and the risk of lockdowns and all of the stuff that we've experienced over the last two years and thought we were finally putting behind us that's kind of the uncertainty that we don't want to see uh because we we know what we've gone through and and i don't think anybody wants to have to go through that again especially as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, uh, the problems we're already facing. I mean, even before anybody heard anything about Omicron uh, a week ago, a week and a half or so ago, uh, we were still dealing with things like supply chain and and, and some uncertainty that's going on here uh, and market instabilities. What does the word about something like this, another variant due to, to that sort of situation, to, to the nervousness that already existed? 
Well, I, I mean, the biggest factor that we've been going through right now is, uh, the, you know, the phrase, the supply chain and the disruptions to the supply chain, right? And so, you know, during the worst of the pandemic, one of the things that was going on in Canada was an attempt to try and at least keep the border open to the transportation of goods. And that kind of kept a bad situation from being a lot worse. If we're facing the risk now of more lockdowns in some degrees and things like that, then it's even more of a disruption to the supply chain. And so, you know, the way that we've been seeing the, the problems with supply chain manifesting these days is with higher inflation. We've been talking about highest inflation in 20 years and the word stagflation has slowly crept back into the the media these days and so that that's the real risk that we're facing then is that if there are targeted lockdowns even if they're of a limited nature that risk of disrupting the supply chain and blocking it from getting back to normal risks triggering that awful stagflation now and i'm glad you brought up the idea of travel restrictions and again we want to remind our listeners that we're not there yet we're not shutting borders down uh, it was, you know, two weeks ago, we were just celebrating the fact that they seem to be opening them up again. And and the restrictions that some governments have put in have been about international travel. In other words, people from, well, places like South Africa, Nigeria, places, they're, they're trying to limit that. And and I'm not going to get into the, whether or not that, that's an effective tool or not. But the reality is, is is this the beginning? Is this the, the thin edge of the wedge? If this does not dissipate, if this is deemed to be something uh, that's going to be as severe as, as the Delta variant, or maybe even worse, as some people are predicting, uh, is there a concern here about further restrictions? And, and let's face it, if the borders are closed, uh, economies have got to be impacted. We already saw that. Yeah, I, I mean, there is a risk of, of lockdowns again, and I, I'm kind of reminded to where we were 12 months ago. And and back then, 12 months ago, we were talking about the need to lock down economies, but the, the catch-22 that we're heading into the holiday season where people are going to want to travel, people are going to want to be together with their friends and families. And especially having been denied that opportunity last year, it's going to be that much harder to now put that sort of restriction on. So we're talking about now six weeks, seven weeks before North American governments might really give serious thought unless something comes out about this variant that says, no, we have to do it now. So, you know, the issue is then in seven weeks, what sort of damage can be done when we're allowing the movement of people in addition to goods? uh, And how much is that going to make it that much harder to contain if it is a dangerous variant uh, in the new year? Well, we said that last week, didn't we, with the U.S. Thanksgiving last Thursday. As we mentioned, Thanksgiving weekend in the States is the busiest travel day of the year, bigger than Christmas, bigger than any other time of the year. And it was it was huge uh, last Thursday because uh, people, as you say, finally had the opportunity to go and travel and visit relatives and friends in different parts of the country. Uh, if you take that away from them, uh, well, as you said, it, we don't want that sense of deja vu here where uh, some people are going to say, well, that's awful. And other people are going to say, to hell with you. I'm going in anyway. And that's what caused an awful lot of the spread we had last December. I don't think we want to go down that road again. No. And, and you know, I, I think the, the government needs to be very careful between scaremongering on the one hand and and being realistic in, in what they expect. We, we saw that, you know, during various stages of the past 18 months, requests by governments asking citizens to take it easy and don't get together if you don't have to. And people were disregarding that, especially in the nicer weather. If you're going to say to people that you can't get together, then make it so that we can't get together. Like it, it either has to be that you need to take this thing very seriously because it is serious, or you need to say that, look, based on the evidence, we don't see it as being serious right now. 
uh, and, and we're not going to impose restrictions. It, it can't be a half-hearted measure because that's just going to blunt whatever comes on the other side of the, the new year when there are decisions that need to be made. And so I, I think it's fine to say that we're going to be cautious right now uh, because we don't have all the information. But I think there's a real possibility that if, if we don't have that information, uh, you know, you need to kind of limit the uncertainty that could really create economic damage. We've talked about inflation creeping its ugly head here, and that's, I think, a, a, a consequence that not too many of us have predicted was happening, but we're dealing with it right now, 4.7%, uh, which is uh, you know, something that we need to be addressing. Uh, and because of that, as, as you talked to us about last week, uh, there's some concern about whether or not the Bank of Canada was going to raise interest rates. If there's going to be concern about a, a, another wave here, Mosh, and, and we're concerned about the impact it's going to have on the economy, does that give the Bank of Canada pause to say, well, maybe maybe we'll just leave interest rates alone? They, uh, t- tinkering with them at a stage like that could be problematic and maybe throw us back into recession again, couldn't it? Yeah, stagflation is the worst combo of, of economic results you could ask for, right? It's, it's uh, high inflation with a stagnant economy, right? So that's the portmanteau of the name. And, you know, the Bank of Canada then is an impossible position because if they want to try and boost the economy, logic would suggest that an interest rate cut or at least a hold would be the minimum they should be doing. But if you want to contain inflation, then it's increasing interest rates. So it seems that whatever decision the Bank of Canada takes, they can address one of the problems, but not both. And so the the bank is now going to have to sit there and decide which one of these is more important, trying to boost an economic recovery or trying to contain inflation. Now, if you have 4.7%, that's high by recent standards, but go back 30 years, 40 years, and 4.7% would be a dream uh, for homeowners back in the 1980s that were facing interest rates in the in the 20% range. So, you know, the Bank of Canada might probably look more towards economic recovery as being the important thing in the short run and dealing with the inflation a little bit later. Yeah, this is this. There's never a good time to say, hey, there's another variant. Uh, but as governments are starting to roll out economic plans, and, and the federal government, of course, with their speech thrown uh, last week, talking about economic recovery and extending benefits, and that's a debate that's going to be happening in the Commons. Uh, the last thing they need here is something that's going to stagnate that recovery. Yeah, and and you know we we saw last year that you know a three hundred fifty billion dollar deficit was not particularly helpful for the Canadian economy. It was good in the sense that it helped people that were losing their jobs, but we're seeing kind of the back end of it now that when there was an attempt to try and remove some of that stimulus, uh, people aren't racing all that quickly back to work because just in twelve months they got addicted to curb payments, wage subsidies, and the idea of being at home. Uh, weird as it sounds, they're not all that interested in racing out. If you now tell them that, hey, there's a variant out there that could be extremely deadly, uh, how fast do people want to really get back out there and, and find jobs and get back to work, especially in sectors that were hard hit, like food and beverage, which are going to be dealing with people on a very direct basis. So, you know, it's possible that we could be talking again about a whole different round of government support programs and a further changing of the way that society behaves and interacts with each other. I know people don't want to hear talk about lockdowns, and, and you and I don't really want to even talk about lockdowns, but uh, we know that that's on the charts if this if this variant proves to be problematic. And we've been there, done that, and I don't think anybody anybody wants to go that down that road again. And that I, I, I'd classify that as the worst-case scenario. Uh, but there are other things that governments may want to be inclined to do, depending on how much information they learn about this and uh, as the healthcare experts come back in the next couple of days and say, okay, it's not going to be as severe as we had thought it might be, uh, but it is going to be around for a while. Uh, again, we get back to consumer confidence motion. And even if we say, okay, you guys, uh, get that third shot that we've been talking about. You're going to have to get that third vaccination. 
continue to wear the masks, uh, but and and beware of the fact that you know there could be more variants because as we just talked about in our last segment, uh, an awful lot of the world is not getting vaccinated, and that's where these these new variants are coming from. So you better learn to live with COVID. Uh, what does that do to consumer confidence? In the short run, not much, uh, or at least not much good. Right? It, it's going to be one of those things that. Uh, there was at least kind of a hope that if we had the vaccines, then we could slowly start to lose the mask. We could start to get together again. If you're telling us that this is going to extend on now for another 12 months, 18 months, the, the short run impact, of course, is that's depressing. It's going to knock a lot out of consumer confidence. But I think that as we get more and more used to it, uh, it just becomes part of what we do. And I know you and I have spoken before about the idea of travel in the aftermath of September 11th, which was now 20 years ago. And so the restrictions that were put on then about, you know, taking off your shoes and all of the limits of being able to access the gate if you don't have a ticket and seeing your loved ones when they get off the plane, you have to wait till they come out clearly from the airport. Those types of things 20 years ago, we would have been talking about as major disruptions and consumer confidence issues. Now it's just part of the cost of doing business. It's an annoyance, but we've gotten used to it. And so, you know, five years, 10 years out, COVID might just be like the flu. It's just something that we get used to. And the idea of masking up or having to show vaccine passports might just be kind of a cost of doing business. Uh, for now, though, it's something new. And that newness is the uncertainty and the the consumer confidence sapping uh, requirements that we face right now. We also, I'm hoping, have learned that uh, that governments uh, have learned from the past of the last 18, 19 months about what works and doesn't work. And, and you know, we all went through the lockdowns that, that have occurred, and especially, as you mentioned, just around Christmas season last year. If, in fact, this is going to be problematic, especially going into the holiday season and, and maybe beyond into the early part of 2022, have governments learned enough now that maybe massive lockdowns and blanket lockdowns are not the most effective way to do this? Because there's a lot of pushback at the time that said, look, at this part of the province here uh, is, is, is doing pretty well. What are you shutting us down for? Uh, in other words, you know, localize this and have targeted lockdowns for areas that may be problematic and, and let the, the rest of the Ontario economy or the Canadian economy uh, continue. Uh, and, and that way, the recovery, I think, would at least be a little more uh, easy for, I, I guess, a lot of places because some people are going to have a leg up on this. Instead of punishing everybody, focus on the areas uh, economically that, that are hardest hit by that. Uh, would that be a more effective tool or maybe maintain some of that consumer confidence and business confidence that you've talked about? I, I think that probably anything that the government does, if it's decisive, is going to be okay. If you, if you think back to one of the issues that we had with Ontario was the complete indecisiveness of the way the decisions were being made. It wasn't being yeah, communicated yeah. clearly. It wasn't being discussed why we're doing it. Or uh, So I, I think that even... Uh, a, a full-scale lockdown of the province would be tolerable if it were clearly communicated. So, well, I, I don't think that's the ideal policy. The fact is that whatever it is that the government chooses to do, it needs to be decisive. And it, it can't be one of those things where we request people to do things. So, uh, you know, a little bit of an iron fist here might be necessary, not dictatorial, but just the idea that, look, we're locking down this region or we're locking down the province or we're going to impose a curfew and we're going to enforce it with steep fines. That type of thing is going to be much more effective at containing this than some sort of just, hey, you know what, if you get a chance, can you go get vaccinated? It could really help things. That That's not going to work. And we've seen that it doesn't work. So that's, I think, what the government has to learn from the last 12 to 18 months. But it's different than it was, say, during the first wave. Uh, because when they talked about lockdowns, we thought, okay, well, this is serious stuff. And we don't really know what we're dealing with this coronavirus. I, I hate this idea of a lockdown, but if it's going to stop this thing, okay, we'll put up with it. 
Uh, and then we went through the second lockdown. We said, hey, wait a second. You know, we, we don't need to be jumping all over everybody here. And I'm thinking of a couple of different sectors in particular that have, were really hard hit by this, and the tourism and, and, and hospitality in particular. Uh, you know, do you, do you blanket shut those down and simply say, okay, we're going to start restricting the, the amount of people that go into a restaurant? So, hey, you know, you're only going to get 5,000 people at a Leaf game uh, for the next three or four months. Uh, are, are a lot of people going to say, wait a second, we've been down that road and it didn't work. I, I, well, the ski industry, you know, it's snowing here in southern Ontario today. Uh, I know the official start of the ski industry here is supposed to start in the next week or so. They essentially got shut down last year, and, and they I don't know if, how long it's going to take. We talked to a couple of those people last week. They're not sure how long their recovery is going to take. Uh, are they going to implore the government to be a little more strategic about what they're going to do with some of these things, if, in fact, they have to do that, the, the lockdowns? Well, I, I assume there's going to be a tremendous amount of lobbying from a variety of sectors this time around trying to use prior history. Uh, the the thing that's the unknown and the uncertain part of the whole story is we just don't know whether this variant necessitates lockdowns or not, right? So, uh, you know, the, the issue goes back to something that you and I talked about 18 months ago, right? Which is how do you balance health of the society versus health of the economy? And so if you lean towards lenience and not locking down the economy, then you risk that this thing could spread. And if it really is dangerous, that's not a good idea. If you lock down the economy and attempt to try and make sure that this thing doesn't spread, if it turns out to be like Lambda and Mu, two previous variants that were thought to be rather serious but never got a foothold, then you're choking the economy uh, and any sort of nascent recovery unnecessarily. So it's just, it's a, a very fine line that the government has to walk here. Whatever it is they decide, like I said, as long as they're clear with what they're trying to do, I think people will be more tolerant than if they just kind of haphazardly throw out policies without thinking through implications and without discussing it clearly with industries that are going to be affected. Well, uh, there's a reality here that I, I guess we have to throw into the into the equation here. Uh, is the politics when you start talking about policy? Of course, it's the politics of developing policy like that. And the the other reality here is, well, both Quebec and Ontario are going to be facing elections in the next few months. And I don't know if either one of these premiers want to be uh, going into a, an election campaign with a bunch of people saying, hey, what are you doing to us again? So uh, we're hoping none of this has to happen. But I think if we learned anything over the last 12 or 15 months, but Moshe, it's that, you know, we've, we've got to at least acknowledge that we have to be prepared and maybe take some steps or at least put a plan in place, even if we don't have to implement it. Uh, I know that uh, the, the indications I saw last week were that uh, uh, the markets indicated that, the, that there seemed to be a move right now towards the hospitality industry. In other words, people were just starting to get that confidence back. Uh, I, I figured that a lot of them probably hitting the pause button when they start hearing about stuff like the uh, the latest variant, the variant rather. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of travel is that it's it's thought to be safe. And, you know, I, I think that if anybody's traveled in the last six months, when you get onto a plane and you see that it's elbow to elbow like it used to be, uh, that's a little bit unnerving if, if, you know, you don't feel completely safe. And so if you now start saying, hey, this variant could be transported across borders and could be more deadly than Delta or might be uh, able to circumvent vaccines, uh, I don't know that people want to get onto a plane. I don't know that people want to necessarily be in a hotel pool uh, and, and sharing space with people where there's no promise that you're safe. So it, it really is dangerous without the knowledge of what this variant is. And, and again, that's that's really what it just keeps coming back to is that if we don't know if this is worse than Delta or just like Delta, or if it's just kind of a, a 
temporary scare that's going to go away because Delta has a stranglehold on on the the virus variant of choice. Uh, it, it's difficult for us to kind of figure out what what to do at this point and how to make decisions. And, and just I know we got a minute left here. So, on a macro level, again, the concern about Bank of Canada, a number of different, you know, the FTC down in the states. Uh, you know, they, they were developing policies to try to deal with inflation right now. Uh, and now I'm sure they just said, OK, guys, everybody in the boardroom, we don't even know what we're dealing with here. So I'm not sure what we're going to be doing. Uh, that sort of indecision has got to be problematic for them, too. Yeah. And I think they're just going to take a wait and see approach like they have been for the last 12 to uh, 15 months and just say what's going on. Uh, and once they figure out what's going on, they'll be able to formulate policy quickly. The Bank of Canada is pretty good about moving fast when they need to. Uh, well, we'll see what happens over the next couple of days. Information is going to be the key here. And what we hear from uh, the health officials, I guess, are going to be a determination as to what's going to be happening. Moshe, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh, please uh, get that list of uh, your Canadian gold favorites to us. Um, Mash McCann, uh, Men Without Hats, all that stuff. We'll throw it all on for you next time you're with us. Fantastic. I look forward to the safety dance. Okay. Take care. Moshe Landers, Senior Economist and Lecturer, of course, with Concordia University up in La Belle Province. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canadian federal government has tabled a new and tougher bill in its latest effort to ban conversion therapy here in Canada. Now, if passed, the legislation would prohibit practices designed to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity, even if it comes with consenting adults, too. It's a little more wide-ranging than uh, than before. At a news conference to discuss this, a tourism minister, Randy Boissonneau, anticipated what critics might say about the bill. Our bill does not criminalize a personal value or belief. It also does not criminalize conversations that explore identity. Nor does it impact teachers speaking to students about important issues. Our bill would protect Canadians from exposure to a cruel and deeply harmful practice. So that's it in a nutshell, uh, how the government's going to proceed on this. They hope to get all party support for that. I don't know if that's maybe just a little too optimistic, but it's only one of a couple of pieces of, uh, well, I would consider controversial uh, legislation that uh, the government's going to be tackling over the next couple of days. Uh, to talk about this, so please to welcome back to the program, do- program rather, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me back. Let's talk, first of all, about the conversion therapy bill, and then we'll get into uh, uh, this the digital service thing that they also talked about. Uh, this is the third kick at the can to try to get this passed. Is the third time the charm here? Uh, I mean, I would suspect, though, so uh, this is a, this like a previous version of the bill actually got through the House back in the spring, but then yeah. it's there wasn't enough runway for it to get through the Senate. And so I think, you know, now they can... <laughs> They can point to their own election call as, you know, the, the reason why it had to come off the rails in the Senate. But I think now it looks like, yeah, you know, there's there's quite a bit of consensus around uh, this bill and around the need for this bill. And so I don't anticipate it's going to be a, a problem getting it through this time. But but again, you know, they've they've left a short runway in the sense that they're meeting for just a, a few weeks and and they've got a few other things on the docket, too. But I, I think, yes, you're right. This, this time will probably be it. The Conservatives did not support it last time in large part. And I think the the official explanation Mr. O'Toole gave at that time is, oh, no, we, we, we're supportive of the idea. We don't think the bill goes far enough. You can take that for what it's worth, I guess, depending on some of the comments that uh, people like MP King and others were saying about the, the bill at that time. Uh, it's going further now than it did before. Uh, are you going to see some Conservative support for this now? I mean, I think we'll still see some conservative support. I mean, there are people in the conservative party who are certainly going to vote yes on this. 
I'm not sure whether we'll see the entire caucus support it because, um, you know, there could be issues in, there could, there could be people who, who are not on board. There could be people who take issue with some of the content here. And again, as, as Minister Boissonneau was saying, you know, the, the bill is not there to prevent conversations or to criminalize conversations. So then it depends on, you know, what, where the Conservatives sit in terms, I think, of the details of the bill and whether it's getting, getting to where they want to be. Um, there are some Conservative MPs who have indicated that their constituents are not comfortable, or at least they, they, as they said the last time, that they weren't comfortable with it. So we'll see. We'll see whether this is going to be something that Aaron O'Toole is able to generate um, some caucus unity around or not. There's there's a feeling, I, I guess, in some circles when we look at some legislation such as this, that, that I think it's fair to say would have, have some social implications, that Oftentimes, the politicians are the ones that are playing catch up with the popular support and and how the the, the mood of the country is actually moved. I think uh, in the environment's an issue uh, very much like that. You know, the, the the politicians seem to always come late to the party with this, even though the consensus among uh, the popular uh, in the it was, to, hey, yeah, we need to do something about the economy. Do you get the sense that that's what's going on here right now? That, that the Canadian public, on large have agreed that this is something that has to happen now and and these guys are, are finally going to sign some piece of legislation to basically meet what we've already asked them to do i think you could take that approach for sure and i mean i think that that is like you can think of a number of examples uh, even something like same-sex marriage where yeah. it's there was quite a, a a deep consensus and it was like as you say you know the the legislators are sort of getting there and i mean if you want to take a really politically cynical you know and hey why not if we, you know, you, if you look through that that lens for a minute it, it's actually much easier politics right like it's easier for the politicians to say okay you know this is what we're going to do when they know that there is a deep reservoir of support for it and so they're not really taking a risk they're doing something that they know people want them. You know, there's quite a bit of support for doing it. And, you know, do we, like, it raises an interesting question around, you know, where politicians show leadership and policy. And do they do things to draw us to the right you know, landing point, you know, or are they waiting for us to get there and then they follow? Which is more of a philosophical point, I guess. But it's, you know, sometimes I wonder about what happens in political leadership and how, how much political will there is to really take leadership on an issue and then draw a public consensus around it or aim to get there as opposed to, yeah, you know, kind of follow along when you can see that this is, this is a, a politically secure thing to do. But that was part of the criticism against the, the those conservatives that spoke out about it last time, wasn't it, Doctor? That you know, okay, we understand that you you guys are playing to your constituency and you know that that element. And yeah. I was going to say in Alberta, but I mean, there's elements of that right across the country in Ontario too that just are not comfortable with this. And we we've, we've seen the it kind of influence those people have had to have tried to have on policy in our government as well. But the rest of the country said, "Hey, hey, come on, guys, we're we're with you on this. I mean, you know, let's let's get on the same page here. I mean, that's what they're expecting of, of, I guess, government officials is to look at the overall consensus instead of trying to play you know, micro politics, which some of them are always going to do. I suppose. I, I agree with you. I think it's probably going to gain that support, and I'd like to think the Senate's going to come on side with it uh, once it starts. Uh, and and you can't look to the other. I mean, this is going to be a long time coming in in the United States. They're, they're nowhere near." I think where the Canadian public is when it comes to this, but that was the same thing with same-sex marriage, wasn't it? I mean, we passed that legislation a long time ago, and yeah. and I can remember when Barack Obama got elected president. We got, what was that, two thousand eight? Uh, mm -hmm. The Democratic platform was opposed to same-sex marriage. Well, that changed about two years later because they all of a sudden caught wind of the fact that hey, the American people are are, are demanding this. We better change. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we've done some similar analysis um, on the role of the Supreme Court in both countries as well, right? Like when the Supreme Court makes a decision that has a significant social impact, you know, we've, we've studied, is the court a leader or does the co- court tend to follow where the public consensus is? And in a lot of cases, it's the latter, right? The court is not mm-hmm. um, kind of introducing something that people have are not really haven't gone there yet. Like in a, in a large, you know, it, to a large extent, it's often that the court is basically doing that that kind of maybe a similar thing to what Parliament does, is sort of catching up with where the public consensus has moved already. I mean, it's interesting. You can, there's lots of different institutional and cultural ways to compare the two countries. The fact that you know the different powers of the states versus the provinces, and the fact that the federal government in Canada, because it, criminal code is federal jurisdiction the federal government is the one to take this role in criminalizing this you know and taking that broad definition and being inclusive and you know having that clear statement around what the point of the bill is and even though some provinces have also you know taken steps to to do what they need to do to make sure that that this ban is in place in their jurisdictions there is a clear role for the federal government because criminal code is is federal whereas in the states it's a different thing Exactly. Other piece that uh, I think is going to raise a few eyebrows and, and maybe uh, more than a little interest south of the border is uh, another campaign promise, and that was uh, the digital services tax on mm-hmm. some of the tech giants. It, it, it's, it, you know, again, public sentiment things. Yeah, let's get that government to go after these guys. I mean, uh, the Facebooks and the Amazons and, and, and the Googles and all of these folks. Uh, although some of the critics right now, as you know, doctor, are suggesting, look at why are you guys even doing this? Uh, yeah. You know, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has already reached a deal uh, with a multilateral right. tax approach with a number of these. It's 15 percent, and, and the, most of the member countries have signed on to this. So they're suggesting that this is redundant. Why Why move forward on a bill like this? Yeah, this is like the timelines and everything. This is just weird. So we know that the liberals have been keen on this taxing tech giants, and it was in the budget. It was in the fiscal update last year. This has been something that they've been out front on. Um, that was part of the the uh, motivation for Bill C-10, which, which you know, I guess they'll be going to be picking up versions of that too. I mean, I think what they're trying to do, I think, is signal that they plan to go ahead with this and that if for whatever reason the OECD thing comes off the rails, they will start to collect this tax. So they're trying to show that they're committed to this regardless. But at the same time, as you say, right, the OECD has made this deal with respect to, to tech, taxing um, these tech giants, and that's not going to happen right away, but it will in a couple of years. And so we really run the risk of, of making things with the U.S. even worse by signaling this, 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 this kind of we will go it alone if we have to. And I mean, at this point, there's no reason to think, that, as far as I know, that the OECD thing won't happen. And so, yeah, like, why are we proactively taking this unilateral step, which again, we wouldn't take until four years time. This isn't going to bring us money next year. Like this would be four years from now. Yeah. As I read this, this is going to be contingent upon whether or not, as you say, the the, the agreement we just referenced uh, from the Economic Cooperation Development Group, if that doesn't go through or if they drag their heels on this, which may happen. I mean, that's one of the political realities here, isn't it? I mean, if we talk about these big ones that we've just talked about, the big Amazons and Googles and Facebooks and, and Uber and Airbnb, you know, guess where their head offices are? I mean, these are really right. American-based companies. And and you got to know that they've been lobbying the American government to say, hey, okay, we can do this, but hey, let's phase this in just a little bit so it doesn't have much of an impact on us. And I can see the government saying, okay, fine, we'll play ball with you on this. Uh, you know, Canada may not like the the time frame. 
so I'm getting the sense that this is going to be the hammer that's going to hold over this and said, okay, if it's not done by 2024, we're coming at you with this. But I can't think right. that the uh, the American government's going to be very happy about this. Well, no. And I mean, I think as you know, for the reasons you say, that's why they're kind of taking a leadership in this multilateral approach as a as opposed to a sort of unitary, everybody coming at, at these countries separately. It's a way to manage, you know, knowing that, yes, of course, come on, you know, these these organizations have to be taxed. But taking that multilateral approach where the U.S. is the biggest player at that table and they're making a decision about what will be the general rate of tax that's applied. And so that goes a long way to protecting these companies from, you know, whatever any individual company might decide, a country might decide to levy on them. But yeah, like, I mean, th- for us, like, it's, it's a question of like the, the liberal government, I think, trying to, you know, wanting to make good on a, on a campaign promise and wanting to say, listen, that revenue is coming through, is going to come through. But at the same time, not ruffle the fe- feathers of partners who, you know, we're all trying to figure out um, what is the appropriate way to regulate and tax these huge companies that even though they're kind of, they've got a home, you know, in, in a country, what they're doing, the advertising, that's just in, that's all over the place. That's, you know, the, where they're working, where those advertisements are going up and all the rest of it, that's all over the place. And so how do you regulate something effectively when it's not kind of that traditional company organization that fits more squarely into, you know, certain, like certain boxes, certain place-based boxes, that kind of thing. I, and I know that I, this is kind of like a, you know, this is a, a one-two punch here because the Canadian government's also going to introduce legislation about content on these on many of these uh, platforms, which is separate and apart. But uh, I, I, I'm going to throw something at you. I wanted to get your read on this. That uh, frankly, the Canadian government doesn't much care about this. Uh, but this is far be it for me to, to you know throw this out here. A political quid pro quo uh, because they they need a, an arm here right now. Uh, they're already complaining about uh, the America, the Buy America policy, and saying, "Well, that's contrary to the to the trade agreement uh, that we struck, the USMCA trade agreement uh, about the auto sector." Uh, if they can come back and use this as a hammer, uh, because I know that uh, that Lighthizer, the, the trade negotiator, is saying, "Wait a mm-hmm. second, Canada, you can't tax those companies. That's against the trade agreement." Uh, is they can say, "Okay, fine, we'll drop, we'll take ours away if you take yours away," and let it. And I, I'm wondering if this is actually going to be a political bargaining chip for the Canadian government when they sit down with these guys. Hmm. Yeah, I know what you're saying. And I'm not sure if, I mean, that's certainly possible. I'm not sure if it's going to be. Maybe maybe I'm giving the government too much credit. I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't know either, right? Like, I think in some in some ways, like, it, it's still strange to see, you know, we've got this multilateral deal over here, which, again, is like, I mean, I guess you could see the, the unilateral proposal coming up as a kind of, okay, in case the multilateral doesn't work out. But I don't think it's a question of this being a backstop, like, if you're doing something multilaterally, you're making like that's a values piece too, right? Like if you're making a commitment to go multilateral with your partners on taxing these giants that in many ways really throw the whole concept of the state on its head when you start seeing these companies that are providing services and are changing the way we live and work and communicate with one another, these the the very existence of these huge corporations that are that are really you know like providing us opportunities to communicate digitally like this stuff is is changing again changing the way we live and work and these are really too big for any individual state to be able to regulate successfully on their own and that's one of the reasons that we have a multilateral approach because these things are just sort of like throwing us all into this totally new role for the state kind of thing right and so the unilateral approach is not 
again, like not just a backstop, like that would be going about it entirely differently. So I don't know that this is going to be, you know, there's any real leverage here for Canada. I think, you know, maybe we're trying to like, you know, show, hey, look, we're still sovereign and we still have our own choice on this. But like in the mix of everything that's going on in terms of the trade relationship now, I don't see how this this kind of signaling a, a unilateral intent is going to be helpful. Uh, we should also mention, by the way, that uh, this is still early days. I mean, there's going to—they they tell us anyway some consultation on this uh, before they actually table something. So, uh, as they say in the business, more to come on this one. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate your input. Thank you too. Take care. Take care, Doctor Laurie Turnbull, of course, from uh, Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.